Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. I really have so much to share. The images from my three days in Israel this week, the wisdom from revered teachers of mine and from random Israelis who burst with insight and clarity, and my own musings and questions. And I want to share with you how I think things really are, and they are very bad in too many ways. And I also want these words of Torah, like all words of Torah, to have some sweetness and to touch your soul and maybe even to uplift it. I want to begin with the moment that utterly destroyed me, that I also wrote about in one of the emails this week. This is a moment that will occupy my mind for the rest of my life when I think of the position of the Jew in the world. It's a moment both of terror and defiance, two enormous polarities of Jewish reality. The former, the terror, forced upon us by those who have hated us. And the latter, the defiance, our response to it all. On the first day in Israel, we met with four women who survived Hamas's massacre at Kibbutz Cholit. All of the women's stories were harrowing. They reminded us of near-miss Holocaust escapes that defy description. But one stands out. A soft-spoken mother of three told us how she and her husband hid in their safe room using all of their muscle power and their arms on the handle to keep the door closed. They heard the Hamas murderers just on the other side of the door. They felt the weight and the pressure of their hands as they tried to open it. And at some point, when it seemed that they would just not be able to hold out, and that their own murders would be imminent. The Jewish mother said this to her oldest son. She said, Ahuvi, my love, zezman lahagirat hashma. It's time to say the shma. The implication being we are about to die, and a Jew should have the shma on one's lips at death. And her adolescent son said back to her, Ima, Kfar Asiti. Ima, I already did. In 2023, in the Jewish state, if that does not crack you open and hurdle you through eons of Jewish history and suffering and vulnerability and too many centuries of weakness and powerlessness in the presence of vicious, hateful enemies and also of Jewish resolve and faith and stubborn and stoic pride, even in the face of horrific circumstances, if that doesn't crack you open, I'm not sure what will. On some deep level, the state of the state of Israel and the state of the Jewish people is contained entirely within that encounter. Because we do again face implacable foes who mean it when they say that they wish death to us all, and it's not just Hamas we are facing, but also the Hamas apologists around the world and on far too many university campuses 
who have become so morally blind that for them a word spoken the wrong way with the wrong new vocabulary is a microaggression, while wanton, bloodthirsty, orgiastic murder and rape offered as religious sacrament while praising God is somehow considered courageous resistance. Provided it is resistance against the Jew, any Jew. The adult Jew in military uniform carrying a weapon and the adolescent Jew in a safe room doing everything possible not to be murdered. And the Jew walking across a college campus to get to class, wondering if it is safe to be conspicuously Jewish in the 21st century of the United States while listening to menacing and sincere cries of globalize the intifada, that person is experiencing a phenomenon that is different from what the victims and the survivors of October 7th confronted, only in quantity and in scope, not in quality and category. They are the same. So we are all in that safe room, holding tight to keep those who would silence us and murder us away from us and pronouncing our faith and our identity certainly if we are to face death and proudly as we continue to claim life. It seemed that every 15 minutes on the 72-hour trip we confronted something almost as infinite, as soul-cracking, as painfully illuminating, and as category-shifting as that moment that I described. And the mantra I kept hearing in my own head as one moment built on the previous one was this. I thought I knew. I really thought I knew. But by being in Israel this time, I now know that I really did not know. For how could I have? And now it's my obligation to make it known. There was an awful and intimate tension brewing in everything we witnessed. At times, it felt as if we were visiting Auschwitz while Auschwitz was still Auschwitz. A different numerical scale, of course. But we were dropped into the atrocities as they remain unfolding. Israel is a nation in mourning, and it's also a nation in war. And as Rabbi Daniel Hartman said, the biblical author Kohelet was right. There is a time for war, and there is a time, and sadly, a need for killing, the most moral version of it possible. But when the Talmud, which elevated the Torah's prohibition of murder into a true societal norm, also said, If someone is coming to kill you, you rise up and you kill first. The Talmud was planting within the Jewish intellect and spirit that there is no nobility to disappearing. There is no ethical beauty in permitting yourself or your family or your nation to be annihilated. Israel is a nation that right now is in an ecclesiastic motion of eight laharog, a time to kill. And the truth, that truth was powerfully in tension with the notion that eight laharog, the time to kill, will not last. It cannot last. It will end. It will end both because there will be growing pressure from the outside for Israel to replace waging war 
with yet another valiant attempt at waging peace, and that may happen sooner than many Israelis and Jews want it to happen, before Hamas's full military ability to terrorize Israel is defeated. But it's also going to end because at some point the Jewish nation itself feels a moral and historical and epic pull to move from quoting the biblical verses and the Talmudic statements that support all efforts at self-defense of the Jewish body to turning to age-old Jewish themes and wisdoms that are all about the self-defense of the Jewish soul. The Jewish soul that hates to kill and that loves to love and that centers shalom and peace in nearly every prayer we ever recite. And that turn may happen later than many in the world would want. But it will happen because it's the most Jewish and Israeli of pivots. We've been pivoting in this way for millennia. There's a nugget of Torah that many teachers and rabbis before me have wielded. It has to do with what seems like two entirely different versions of Abraham within Parshat Vayera from a few weeks ago. We have the Abraham of Stom and Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, who negotiates with God and pushes back against the divine decree, demanding that God change God's mind and spare those cities if even a minion of righteous people can be found there. And then we also have the Abraham of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, who follows God's seemingly horrific order with acquiescence, without raising a word of rebuke or even question. Would the real Avraham stand up? Who are you, father of our nation? Are you the man who follows God or critiques God? The man of trusting faith or the man who questions everything? Avraham and each of us is a little bit of both. And I find a similar seesaw in the character of Yaakov, Jacob, especially within our Parsha of Yishlach. The hardest part of the Parsha to read and speak about is the abduction of Dina. The very text we spend most of the morning reading. It's particularly hard to read those words now as the rape of Jewish women on October 7th is belittled or worse, called out as a fabrication. Apparently, it is a Me Too world as long as they are not Jews. But even in normal times, the narrative is painful. Now, the Torah itself is terse as usual and the story lacks detail. It's unclear from the original Hebrew of Dina was raped or merely seduced. It's unclear whether Shechem, her putative abductor, had true feelings for her and that's why he wanted to be with her. Or if he was an abuser who fabricated feelings after the fact. And we'll never know answers to that. The text, like so many biblical texts, reads like a Rorschach test. We see in it what we want to, what speaks to us, and what we need in any given moment. But what is unambiguous is that her brothers considered her dignity to have been violated and that two of them take it into their own hands to enact justice and perhaps vengeance on Shechem and his tribe. They feign willingness to permit intermarriage between the tribes, all a pretense to induce them to submit to circumcision in order to be acceptable mates for Jewish women. And then Shimon and Levi taking advantage of their weakness after the circumcision, kill every man in the town. 
The other brothers may not have participated in the killings, but the Torah is quick to let us know that they all plundered the town because Shechem had defiled their sister. The Torah uses language to amplify the pathos of this story. Why did the Shechemites submit to this plan in the first place? The plan that actually sealed their deaths? Because Shechem and his father Hamor told them all, Ha'anashim ha'ele shleimim heim itanu. These men, referring to Yaakov and his sons, are shleimim, from the root shalem, which means full and pure. Same root as shalom. In other words, we trust these men. They offer peace. How can we not accept it? It hurts to read of these Israelite men returning trust with bloodshed. Because we Israelites, we Jews, know what it's like to be on the receiving end of such treachery. And this brings me to one side of Yaakov. He is furious with Shimon and Levi. Certainly he cares for the dignity of his daughter Dina, but ends cannot be justified by any means, with no limits. Righteous intent can lead to unacceptable outcomes. He excoriates them. Achartemoti. You have stirred up trouble for me. You've made me reek. You've made me odious against, amongst all those who dwell in this land. Now you could choose to read this as Yaakov being disturbed, not by the violence itself, but only by the realpolitik, how people will think of him and his clan. But the medieval Spanish commentator Ibn Ezra pushes it a bit deeper. The reason that those who dwell in the land will hate me, he says, is because I will emit a foul odor, meaning I do stink, because what you did is foul. They will hate me for good reason. This is not momentary paternal rage. Yaakov does not forget what Shimon and Levi do to the name and reputation of Israel. At the end of his life, when he gathers his sons to bless them, Shimon and Levi essentially get a, not a blessing but a curse and an internal distancing from the community of Israel. Yaakov says, Hamas The weapons, their weapons are tools of lawlessness, of, in Hebrew, Hamas. As I've shared many times, those two syllables in that verse, Hamas, are a verbal coincidence here, with no etymological connection. But even as a homophone, it is chilling that Yaakov names Shimon and Levi's violent urges as representing Hamas. And then he says, Essentially, I want nothing to do with them. I cut them off from the legacy of Israel. This aspect of Yaakov is reinforced in a midrash earlier in our Parsha. The Torah describes Yaakov's state of mind before he reunites with Esau, whom Yaakov assumes, as Jules taught us, wants to kill him because he's massing with 400 men. And the Torah says, Yaakov was very afraid and distressed. Why the apparent redundancy? Classic Midrash says he was afraid lest he be killed. He was distressed lest he have to kill this is evocative of Golda Meir's off-quoted line that when peace comes, quote, we will perhaps in time be able to forgive the Arabs for killing our sons, but it will be harder for us to forgive them 
for having forced us to kill their sons. This is one slice of Yaakov of Yisrael. This is a leader who, like his ancestors, have attempted to do and have been challenged to do every time they've been blessed and burdened with sovereignty. It's one who knows that there are limits to one's use of power, even when motivated by the defense of self and of ravaged women. This is Yaakov whose name changed to Yisrael because he struggled with God, and he still struggles every day to figure out the most godly way to live life and rear family and create a nation and defend a land and fight enemies. But like his grandfather, Yaakov was also multifaceted. Because we also have numerous examples of Yaakov who will do just about anything to dominate, to come out on top, to be the victor. He dupes his father-in-law, Lavan, out of his flock his entire living because he'd rather beat Lavan than lose to him. He exploits Esau's weakness and hunger to barter for his birthright and then doubles down years later, tricking even his own father to steal his older brother's blessing. Why? Because if he didn't, then Esau would. Because some games are zero-sum. Because as we read in the Talmud, a text which associates Esau with Rome and then with Christianity both mighty nations that spent centuries devouring the seed of Jacob. The Talmud says, Le'olam Esav sonet Yaakov. It has always been and it always will be that Esau will hate Jacob. And so we must be on guard. And we must defend what is ours. And we must be prepared to kill before we are killed. Yaakov Israel bequeathed that also to his namesake nation, to all of us. Yaakov was born grabbing to the Akiv, the heel of his brother, and he will never tire of doing just about anything he can to make sure he's in the lead with power rather than behind and vulnerable. Both of those Yaakovs are struggling with one another in today's Jewish nation and today's state of Israel. Perhaps not on the far extremes. We must confess that there are too many Jews, including within the current Israeli government, who are embarrassed by the Yaakov who cursed his violent sons. To them, Israel is only a fighter and a survivor. This is a dangerous and narrow myopia of Jewish thinking. And we also must be aware that in my mind there are too many Jews including many who wield power in synagogues and among Jewish organizations of repute and significance, who are ashamed of the Jew with the gun, with the Magain David, the Star of David, on any weaponry of death, who are ashamed of the unavoidable messiness of defending a border and a nation. That, too, is a dangerous and at least partially self-hating and self-abnegating perversion of the Jewish soul. But most of us, I'd like to think... That includes everyone in this room and everyone in our community and nearly everyone we know who has been paralyzed and pulverized and resolute and ramrod since October 7th. Most of us are struggling with both Yaakovs. Just as Yaakov strove with Esau in their mother's belly. A constant and uncomfortable and at times intolerable tussling. The instinct to survive and the instinct to be a nation worthy of survival. 
I pray for the strength and wisdom for the leaders of Israel in the upper echelons of government, amongst the military leadership, and down to the 19-year-old officer who must weigh risks to his life and the lives of his soldiers against the lives of innocent Palestinian Arabs as they seek to destroy the life of Hamas. Yaakov is battling in every tank, in every command center, and I don't envy their decisions. And I'm uplifted by the strength and the wisdom of the people of the state of Israel who have already found a way to live while still mourning, to muster a sense of community and a family, to on the dime reverse nearly every force that was pulling apart Israeli society on October 6th, such that it now seems that the fabric of Israel has never been woven closer together than since after October 7th. Hostage Square, the impromptu sanctuary and art installation and prayer space and mourning tent that popped up within days on the large courtyard outside the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, it tells both stories. Because their catastrophe mingles with renewal. Their wrenching artistic displays of children murdered in cribs and the faces and names of every hostage in Gaza and harsh modern midrashim replacing Avinu Malkeinu with the Hebrew-led kaf, meaning our father, our king, with Avinu Malkeinu with the Hebrew letter kuf, meaning our father who beats us. Those are all woven in with faces of resilience. And men and women who grew up on those southern kibbutzim and then left to live their lives somewhere else, coming back to the tent, for instance, dedicated to Nachal Oz, a town that we have adopted at Beth Am, or Cholit, back to the tents in that courtyard representing their home communities, just sitting there, holding space for one another and for anyone who comes who wants to hear something about that town, that village. In Hostage Square, there are nightly gatherings of prayer and song, weeping and also reveling in what it means to have built a modern Jewish civilization in which everybody really does, on a deep level, care about everyone. Hostage Square was impossible to walk through with one's soul unscathed and also impossible to walk through without one's spirit sent soaring. At the same time, in the same place, Yaakov battling with Yaakov, Yaakov dancing with Yaakov. I haven't even come close to telling you all the stories. I didn't tell you about being in the room with Rachel Goldberg, an old friend who came hurtling back into my life when I realized that it was she who was the lioness mother of Hirsch Goldberg Poland, who was last seen in a video being thrown into the back of a truck by Hamas minutes after his left arm was blown off by the grenade that he tried to throw out of the safe room in which he and his friends were hiding. I didn't tell you about the gathering at Hartman on Thursday night, which words just cannot describe linking this Parsha and Dina's ordeal with the tragedy and the trauma of all the women who were raped and violated on October 7th, a night of poetry and song and deep heave-sobbing and also healing. Did not tell you how holy it felt to get sweaty picking olives in a grove that has plenty of olives, but insufficient workers to pick them. I did not tell you about the image that shows how impossibly complex and layered modern Israel is. 
when I went to Hadassah Hospital to visit wounded soldiers, and when I walked into the first room and I saw a newly married Jewish soldier who was nearly fatally wounded fighting this war against Palestinian Arab terrorists being tended to by an Arab nurse, and this being utterly normal in this holy, non-normal state of Israel. I did not tell you unless you read my Facebook post about Professor Chimichu Ri, a medical clown originally from Buenos Aires, ergo the name, who now spends his days walking around the Ein Gedi Hotel where hundreds of internally displaced Israelis, many of them grieving terrible losses, are temporarily living. He looks for children to cheer up and adults in order to put an unexpected smile on their faces. And he carries among his baubles a Harry Potter Hogwarts sorting hat, floppy and cute, and a great prop, and sporting three holes created by Hamad's bullets on October 7th as it sat in a chest of toys in a kibbutz holit home. I didn't tell you about the two women we met from Hartman's Rabbanit, Rabbanut Yisraelit program, an amazing multi-denomination rabbinic ordination program training orthodox and even secular men and women to be rabbis. One of them is named Ayala. She describes herself as a fierce feminist whose husband is now serving near Gaza and may be in Gaza. She told us that my job right now is to be a mother to my children to my people, there is no time to cry right now. Now I need to hold and comfort and rebuild. I will get to cry in the future. And another one of those rabbinical students named Ranana, who said that when people ask her, Mashlomech, how are you? She wants to respond, what do you want to hear? Do you have a half an hour and a box of tissues? And how while she's tried to live a life of service to her husband and her children and her tradition and her professional obligations, she's now leaning into how to say yes when people want to serve her. Do you want us to make you dinner tonight? Yes, she says. Someone is offering free massages to wives of reservists who are fighting. Are you interested? Yes, she says. I didn't tell you about so many more moments all deeply etched in my kishkas. But I hope I've conveyed the Naomi Shemer-like overlap and mixture of dvash and oketz, of stings so piercing and honey so delicious, of mar and matok, of a bitterness the likes of which I had never witnessed in person alongside the sweetest parts of the Israeli culture and the Jewish world. I hope you have heard the laughter being laughed in Israel And I hope you can taste in your own mouths Israel's salty tears. Every morning in the liturgy at the end of Psalm 30, which we recite during Pesuket Zimra, we describe God as God, you have turned our mourning into dancing. For the last eight weeks, we've been awash in the devastation of October 7th, during which Hamas literally brought around about the reverse, turning dancing at a dance festival into mourning. This is not the first time our people have suffered such horrific inversions at the hands of bloodthirsty enemies. That fictionalized scene in Fiddler on the Roof when the Cossacks maraud through what ought to have been a purely joyful wedding 
that represented all two real truths from centuries of pogroms. We know the pain of precipitous and violent and tragic falls from joy and celebration to grief and trauma. And yet our tradition knows well the pathway and the vocabulary for the onerous but sacred sacred turnaround. I've had the blessing of officiating at two weddings since October 7th, each of which, by coincidence, had either an Israeli bride or an Israeli groom. At both weddings, I remarked that the beloved Jewish wedding song, Odi Shama, Odi Shama, it's a courageous aspiration born out of loss and devastation. The words of the song are based on Jeremiah's biblical prophecy that a destroyed and an overwhelmed Jerusalem, deep in mourning, would one day be the very place from which happiness would erupt. The land of Israel, then bereft and in shock, would soon be the source of couples finding one another and building their own future and the future of the Jewish people. Whenever we have felt ourselves in the pit, in the darkness, thrust into a realm of weeping and eulogizing by those who wished we would disappear, we have mustered the language and the strength to be the very forces through which Psalm 30's words would come to life. God, with our help, and we, with God's help, are determined to turn misped, mourning, into machol, dancing. We are determined to continue to build the Jewish nation with both aspects of Yaakov illuminating our path, with the drive to survive, and with the moral light of Torah refining our survival. With pride, with fervor, with confidence in the land of Israel, in the land of our people, wherever our people are. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.